And welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? Oh, I'm doing okay. Lisa and I started watching a reality show called Alone, in which people try to survive in the Arctic wilderness with very few tools, and that's been fun. I don't really watch very much reality TV, or like any of it, other than sometimes reruns of supermarket sweeps, which is in a lot of ways kind of the opposite of this show. But I've been digging it. It's weird the extent to which I empathize with these characters with whom I have nothing in common, either in terms of situation or abilities, But the other day we were watching an episode in which there was a guy who, despite having plenty of meat, was still starving because he couldn't get any fat in his diet because a wolverine had eaten his moose fat. And I found myself being like, oh, I should go eat some ice cream. I mean, better safe than sorry. So that's been fun. Lisa was asking me if there was any prize for the runners-up on that show because the winner gets half a million dollars. And there's no mention of the other contestants getting anything. So, I mean, it would suck if you were, like, surviving alone in the Arctic wilderness for, like, three months and walked away with nothing. But I've watched enough movies to know that the person who comes in second place is, if nothing else, going to get some very exciting offers to be hunted by eccentric billionaires. So, good for them. Now, before we get into the rest of the episode, I do just want to give you guys a heads up. The issue that we're going to be covering today features a character whose origin and actions in this issue are intensely problematic in terms of racism and sexism. The episode also has me and Corey making a bunch of dumb goofs, but some Pretty disturbing shit comes up in this issue that I just kind of want you to be prepared for. Okay, now without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by John C. The best chocolate shop in town? Obviously Pops is. I stop by every day after school for an ice-cold synopsis. Synopsis. Thanks, John C. Defenders, number 79. January, 1980. Chains of Love. Written by Ed Hannigan. Drawn by Herb Trimpey and Ed Hannigan. Inked by Mike Esposito. Lettered by Clem Robbins. Colored by Carl Gafford. And edited by Al Milgram and Mary Jo Duffy. Defensive lineup. Valkyrie. Hellcat. The Wasp. Yellow Jacket. Doctor Strange, The Incredible Hulk, Namor the Submariner, Nighthawk, and Eroica. Previously in the Defenders. Doctor Strange learned of the existence of an enormously powerful evil entity which he called the Unmentionable One, and I call the Underpants Monster. 
Apparently this underpants monster posed an existential threat to the entire universe, so Steve called up the other members of the original Defenders lineup, the Hulk and Namor, and asked for their assistance. Begrudgingly, this disparate duo of arguable do-gooders agreed to accompany the supercilious super-sorcerer on his sojourn. But unbeknownst to Steve, the Hulk had already encountered an agent of the Underpants monster, a silvery space Barbapapa, who had uploaded his boss's secret name into the Hulk's brain, then erased all memory of their encounter. Unaware that a member of their party was a sleeper agent for their undergarment nemesis, Steve teleported the trio to the bizarre high-fantasy nonsense realm of Tunnel World. To avoid attracting the attention of their enigmatic enemy, the three heroes donned disguises. Since Tunnel World apparently didn't have any trench coats, Steve used his magic to alter their appearances. Steve now looked like a slightly older wizard. The Hulk turned purple instead of green. And Namor turned into an owl. The now inconspicuous adventurers began their quest in the traditional fashion, by going to a tavern to gather information. They soon encountered a mysterious stranger with a pair of gigantic golden wings growing out of the side of his head. The stranger introduced himself as Aroika, and informed them that he was prophesied to act as their guide and lead them to victory against the underpants monster. Convenient. Meanwhile, back on Earth, a trio of civilians named Ruth, Richard, and Amber asked Valkyrie and Hellcat to help them look for their missing pal, a 12-year-old boy named James Michael Starling, and his friend Diane. Val and Patsy agreed to help, but as Nighthawk was under investigation for financial malfeasance and had been barred from participating in any superheroic activity, hooray, they found themselves a bit understaffed. So Patsy called up her old pal, the Wasp, and asked her to lend a hand. The Wasp, aka Janet Van Dyne, came and picked them up in the Avengers Quinjet, and off they went. A whole bunch of ridiculous nonsense happened, but the upside was they all ended up in Las Vegas, where they learned that James Michael was kind of a robot from space, but also definitely not a robot. He blew up a whole bunch of other space robots who were probably the good guys, and was going to blow up the Earth, but then didn't and imploded himself instead. Bummer. During the fracas, the Wasp's jet got exploded, so Janet called her husband Hank Pym, aka Yellowjacket, aka Ant-Man, aka Giant-Man, aka Goliath, aka Inspector and Sector, to come and pick them up in the Avengers spare jet. Hank pulled up a few minutes later. Richard decided to stay put in Vegas, but Ruth, Amber, and Diane piled into the jet along with Val, Patsy, and Janet, and they all started flying back to New York. While they were flying over Colorado, the gang spotted that an Air Force base was under attack. They dropped the civilians off a safe distance away and leapt into the fray. Our heroes, and Hank, soon discovered that the base was being robbed by two distinct, equally well-defined groups of villains. The first group was called Mutant Force and was made up of former C-list members of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Its members were Peeper, who had huge eyeballs, Lifter, who was strong and could manipulate gravity, Slither, who was a snake man, Scorcher, who could shoot beams of heat out of his hands and sometimes forehead, and Shocker, who could generate electrical blasts and also had lobster claws for hands and feet. The second group of villains was called Femforce and was made up of an indeterminate number of women. Its members were an indeterminate number of women whose names and abilities we never learned. The Defenders fared relatively well in battle, but several members of Mutant Force managed to escape, taking Yellowjacket with them as their prisoner. 
Valkyrie, Hellcat, and the Wasp began to head back towards the jet to pursue their fleeing foes, but were intercepted by Amber, who claimed to have found someone who could help them track down their kidnapped comrade. Despite some misgivings, our heroes followed their friend, only to find that Amber had led them into a police station, where they found themselves ambushed and outnumbered by heavily armed members of Femforce. Gadzooks! Will we ever learn the names of the members of Femforce? Did Amber betray the defenders because she holds them responsible for the death of her friend, James Michael? And will Eroica lead the original defenders on an aerial adventure? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... No. No, we will not. No, she betrayed the defenders because she was being mind-controlled by a humanoid baboon. And no. The six-foot golden wings growing out of the side of Eroica's head are purely ornamental. Eroica leads the incognito original defenders through the countryside of Tunnel World. The three heroes trudge along behind their wing-headed guide. Well, Stephen the Hulk trudge anyway. Namor, who is still disguised as an owl for some reason, sits on the Hulk's shoulder and complains. Good old Namor. The group comes to a clearing, and Eroica signals them that this is where they will make camp for the night. The group's difficult-to-fit-for-a-hat tour guide informs them that the valley they are in is protected by a group of benevolent, invisible spirits called the Naya, who love freedom and oppose the underpants monster. Steve confirms that it is safe and drops the disguises. The gang seems pretty tired, and Eroica suggests that they all take a nap, but Namor is like, I'm not sure I trust this wing-headed guy, and I'm not sleeping until he answers some questions. First of all, what the fuck is going on here? And B, why aren't his wings growing in a normal place, like out of the sides of his ankles? Eroica is like, Namor, I understand your concerns, but let me prove how trustworthy I am by tricking you into falling asleep so that I can invade your dreams to deliver some exposition. And with that... Namor, Steve, and the Hulk all fall into a deep slumber. Eroica explains that the Naya use their influence to induce sleep because the wing-headed people communicate best by Freddy Kruegering their way into people's subconsciouses and manipulating their dreams to form narratives. Once his audience is snoozing it up, Eroica pops into their collective noodles to deliver a metric shitload of high-fantasy backstory and exposition about the history of Tunnel World. It's... it's a lot. It's also all delivered in fairly flowery speech that we are told is the translation of the song which is actually imparting this information to our heroes. Man, next time I'm in a meeting and someone asks me a difficult question, I'm totally going to try the old. I think I could best answer that question by singing a song in your dreams. Anyway... The cheap knockoff of the Silmarillion that Winghead inceptions into our protagonist's brains boils down to this. A long time ago, the Underpants monster helped a vulture-headed jerk named Yitidnidian enslave everyone in Tunnel World except for the Naya, who are free spirits of the mind. Yitidnidian and his vulture-headed pals built a heavily armored citadel called Ogion which looks like a spiky fortress from the outside, but inside is a nightmarish hellscape reminiscent of the third triptych from Hieronymus Bosch's Garden of Earthly Delights. Then they created the Wingheads. The Wingheads were good and pure and noble and loved freedom. 
Yatitnidian and his pals made them pretty much just so that they had someone to oppress and be a jerk to. He gave them giant non-functional wings on the side of their heads as a prank, so that they'd always want to fly, but never be able to. Also, hats would be a real issue, although that seems to be a lesser concern. The wingheads were forced into a life of servitude to the vulture-headed jerks who were super mean to them and sometimes fed them to monsters, I guess, unless that's just a visual metaphor. But the wingheads endured and secretly befriended the invisible Naya who taught them how to do the whole dream-talking thing and also told them about how rad freedom is. Through their dream chats, the wingheads learned of a prophecy that one of their own would one day be free and help defeat the vulture heads and the underpants monster. A little while ago, Eroika escaped from Ogion and is pretty sure that he's the guy from the prophecy. Well, good for him. The defenders are part of the prophecy too, so Eroika decided he better start hanging out with them. Which brings us more or less up to the present. Now that he's finished singing exposition into our hero's sleeping brains, Eroika decides to poke around in their noggins a little and see what their respective deals are. First, he takes a look into Namor's mind and is like, Holy fuck, this dude is rad! Then he looks into Steve's skull and is like, Eh, wizard shit. Seen that before. Guess he's a pretty good wizard, but whatever. Also, like, two-thirds of the thoughts in here are about those sexy flame ghosts. Eroika then turns his attention to the Hulk, but as soon as he does so, the Hulk instantly reverts to his Bruce Banner form and wakes up. Interesting. Meanwhile, on Earth, Valkyrie, Hellcat, and the Wasp are mixing it up with Femforce. Despite Valkyrie's occasionally enforced mystical inability to harm another woman, the Defenders are holding their own. Unfortunately, before too long, the members of Mutant Force who had previously kidnapped Yellowjacket return to assist their female counterparts. Shocker and Lifter team up to KO Hellcat and the Wasp, then Slither pops the Wasp into a little jar with holes in the lid. Valkyrie attempts to avenge her fallen comrades, but Femforce, aided by Ruth, Amber, and even young Diane, take advantage of Valkyrie's Achilles' heel and subdue the angry Asgardian. The captured heroes are thrown in prison until the mysterious boss, who is in charge of both femme and mutant forces, is ready to have an audience with them. Valkyrie asks why her former friends have betrayed her, but Ruth tells the Aesir Amazon that once she meets the boss, everything will be clear. Meanwhile, in a different cell across town, Yellowjacket desperately tries to clear his head, but to little avail. If he were able to concentrate, he would be able to shrink down and escape. But the thus far unnamed boss has drugged him to prevent that from happening. Peeper sasses the shit out of the adult Avenger. That evening, Val, Patsy, and Janet are taken from their prison cell to the large house which their captors have been using as a base of operation. Diane carries the wasp's jar, and Janet is frustrated that her young warden seems to be inadvertently covering up the holes in the lid of the jar with her hands. When they arrive at their destination, our heroes are shocked at the scene which greets them in the house's spacious parlor room. The members of Femforce are fawning all over the members of Mutant Force and are waiting on them hand and foot. The women are dancing with and for their male counterparts, sitting in their laps and making out with them as they shower them with unearned compliments. It's a pretty disturbing spectacle. Valkyrie in particular is upset at this behavior. She's like, this is some fucked up bullshit! The sorcerously Scandinavian sword slinger snaps out of her handcuffs and starts beating the living shit out of mutant force. Hooray! Then, the oft-discussed boss shows up. Turns out that the boss 
is named Mandrill. He looks like, well, like a Mandrill baboon, who is dressed kind of like Doctor Strange in a blue tunic with a big red cape with a Dracula collar. Mandrill tells Val to knock it off. Surprisingly, Val knocks it off. Huh? What gives? Well, what gives is that the Mandrill has some sort of superpower that makes women fall under his mesmeric sway. He's been using this power to control Femforce, and has in turn been using Femforce to bring Mutant Force under his sway with their displays of affection. Gross. Like, super gross. For the past several minutes, Mandrill has been exercising his abilities on Val, Patsy, and Janet. He asks the heroes if they love him, and in a daze, Val and Patsy answer that yes, yes, they love him. In her jar, the Wasp seems unaffected by the Mandrill's power, but she plays along and claims that she too loves her ape-like adversary. Once he is convinced that our protagonists are under his thrall, Mandrill tells Valkyrie that she is now the leader of his army and is in charge of his plan to conquer the nation. Val accepts the position with apparent honor. Lifter voices his opposition to this promotion, arguing that mutant force should be in charge of the operation. Mandrill yells at him and is like, You guys are a bunch of stupid idiot losers. You're bad at everything and nobody likes you. Lifter takes umbrage at this, but Scorcher is like, yeah, he's kind of got a point there, and calms his beefy buddy down. Later that night, Diane, who had been pretending to sleep, sneaks the jar of Janet aboard the nearby Avengers jet. A few seconds later, the jet takes off. Peeper sees this happen, because of course he does. I mean, you don't call the guy Peeper because he likes Pepper, but pronounces it with a weird accent. Although that would be a pretty fun way to pronounce Pepper. Salted beeper. <laughs> Aboard the jet, Diane explains that she noticed Mandrill seemed to be controlling women with his pheromones, which is why she blocked the air holes to Janet's jar so that they wouldn't be able to get in there. Wow, that is some impressive supposition, Diane. That's an intuitive leap that would make Silver Age Batman proud. Janet congratulates Diane on her quick thinking and provides the additional hypothesis that Diane is still immune to Mandrill's influence because she hasn't gone through puberty yet. Good to know. Jan tries calling the Avengers for help, but they aren't home. Then she tries the Fantastic Four, but they aren't available either. So naturally, her next call is to Kyle Richmond. Yup. Nighthawk is one of the top three people in the world that one of the most well-connected women in the Marvel Universe calls when there's an emergency. Because clearly, what this situation calls for is someone with no impulse control who has the strength of two strong men slightly less than half the time, depending on the time of year. Kyle answers the phone and explains that the Justice Department has specifically banned him from doing any superheroing until further notice, and that it would be wildly irresponsible for him to defy this order as thousands of people rely on his company, Richmond Enterprises, for their employment. Which is to say, of course he'll do it. He just needs to pick up the fancy new suit his engineers have been working on because he was already half planning on defying the order regardless. Damn it, Kyle! Back at Mandrill headquarters, Peeper reports that Jan and Diane have escaped. Mandrill's pretty peeved about that, and also confused as to how they managed to resist his power. Based on virtually no evidence whatsoever, the monkey-faced Machiavellian menace assumes that they are headed for the nearby airbase that was the site of the recent skirmish. He orders Valkyrie to lead his forces in another raid on the base. At his command, Val, 
Patsy, and the forces, both mutant and femme, hop into some weird convertible tanks I guess they have and head towards the base, intent on recapturing Janet and Diane. To be continued. Man. It's a good thing Arrowica's people are able to entertain themselves by singing stories at each other in their dreams, because I would hate to have to sit behind one of those guys in a movie theater. And joining us once again via the magic of telephonic communication is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how's it going? Hey, it's going all right. How are you? I'm doing all right. Good. It was Lisa's birthday yesterday, so we celebrated by eating too much sushi, and it was a very nice time. That is one of the best ways to celebrate. Agreed. Yes, protein drunk plus regular drunk. Hell of a combination. It's a good time. Well, are you ready to talk about a comic book? I think so. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure on this one, but I guess I'm as ready as I'm gonna be. Yep, best to just dive in. All right. Corey, what did you think of this comic book? Who can deny that the disguised forms of Doctor Strange the Hulk and the Submariner are equally bizarre? <laughs> uh, that kind of sums it up. I don't know. It was a weird comic, and that's saying something. Yeah, even for what we have been dealing with recently, this is a weird comic book, and... Unfortunately, it puts us in the position of having to discuss three of my least favorite isms, I would say, which would be sexism, racism, and Ayn Rand's objectivism, because mm. they all pop up in this comic rather a lot. Mm -hmm. So uh, which one do you want to start with? Do you want to start with the Mandrill story, or do you want to start with the high fantasy wing-headed nonsense story let's uh follow the chronology of the comic and start with the fantasy bit okay what do you think of this part of the story well i realized i don't know how to spell skexy like those bad chicken guys from the dark crystal mm -hmm. because i that was one of the character types in there really reminded me of those guys yeah that would be uh yittitnedian i believe yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. who is either, we are given a couple of options for why he looks like a bird. One, he was just so evil that he naturally started looking like a bird. Or B, he was so evil that he decided to look like a bird. Or C, that uh, Captain Unmentionable or whoever. <laughs> yeah, the, the underpants monster. The underpants monster was like, and uh, you shall all be ugly birds because you serve me. But that's dismissed immediately because the underpants monster can't create. Mm. Like it presents that as a possible third option, but then with the next sentence says, but that cannot be because the unnamed cannot create. He can only destroy. Yeah, that is part of a very convoluted chronology that is presented by Aroika in a weird move that he does to deliver exposition, where he gets the impression that Steve and the Hulk and Namor don't really trust him. So to help gain their trust, he 
kind of slips them a psychic Mickey, knocks them out, and then goes benign Freddy Krueger into their dreams to sing them a complicated song that will explain his history. Yeah, I I thought that idea was actually pretty interesting of there's this race of people or creatures that have been essentially created by these evil bird guys mm-hmm. as like a an opposition to them. So, you know, they're supposed to be beautiful and, you know, good. <laughs> so beautiful. So beautiful with those head wings. And, you know, good and all of this stuff so that they would have this, you know, like they've created this thing to have opposition to and then also further like kind of double down on their cruelty by giving them the desire to fly because they have these wings growing out of their head but that are so impractical they cannot fly with them Mm -hmm. and all that just i think to circle back and prove the point of how evil the utidians are right And also, we want to underline that evil yet again by saying that they forbade them from speaking. So like Planet of the Apes style where no ape can say no, these dudes aren't allowed to say anything. So they develop their own language in dreams where they sing dream songs that portray a narrative and also has a prophecy interwoven in them by mystical creatures called... The Naya. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I had to read it a few times, and I kind of resented that. <laughs> I, my immediate thought upon reading it was, God damn it, I didn't want to read The Silmarillion when J.R.R. Tolkien wrote it. I definitely don't want to read it when Ed Hannigan's writing it. It mm-hmm. is like some dense, high fantasy backstory nonsense. There were parts of it that I appreciated, and then once I kind of noticed a few more details about it, I noticed that I'm pretty sure this is some very thinly disguised Ayn Rand objectivism that's going on here. And there are some very specific clues about that. Did you catch any of that? No, I was kind of like just distracted by the Bosch-esque-ness of the dreamscape where Arioka is describing what's going on. Right. So yeah, tell me the objectivism angle. Well, the biggest clues are the names of the creatures that are involved. Did you catch anything odd about them other than the fact that they're odd? I kept misreading the Citadel name as Oregon. Right, because the name of the Citadel, where all the wing-headed dudes are being enslaved, is Ogion. Now, when you spell that backwards, it is no ego. When you spell Yititnidian backwards, it is no identity. Uh, oh, I should spell more things backwards. Well, when you're reading an Ed Hannigan comic, you should anyway. <laughs> yeah, no, I didn't mean in general. Just <laughs> Yeah, so those are the evil creatures that are the oppressive state who are trying to restrict freedom and are incapable of creativity. The good creatures are the Naya. And what's that backwards? Uh, let me see, how is it spelled? A- N-Y-A. Oh, no. <laughs> yep. Ein, as in Ayn Rand. Oh, jeez. I guess Dinar would have been a bit too on the nose, but I was trying to do some research on this because I was like, that is pretty blatant. Does Ed Hannigan have a history of, like, objectivism stuff? And nothing really came up when I was doing a little bit of preliminary research. But this is pretty clearly, I think, an analogy for Ayn Rand's 
objectivist philosophies. Just, yeah, in terms of portraying the the good creatures want to have intellectual freedom, but it is restricted by the oppressive state. And yeah, the names are a huge clue to that, which honestly, I might not have keyed into it if it wasn't for those things. But once you start seeing it that way, it, it is difficult to view it in a different context. Mm-hmm. The only thing missing, I guess, would be a strange focus on the importance of rail travel. But uh, but other than that, it's pretty much all there. Yeah, need uh, some iconoclast architecture. I mean, it certainly didn't look like conventional architecture that was going on in the Citadel at Ogeon. Because you're right, the scene in which the main thrust of the exposition is being delivered, it does look kind of Boschian, and not just because of the vulture-headed creature. There is weird shit going on in every corner of that panel. And that's one of the things that I liked about this, like the idea of delivering exposition in a dreamscape and we're told that it's through song, essentially, but that this is the bits that are gleaned. So anything that gets like lost in the translation or that we didn't get, there's a built-in explanation for why. I think that's kind of clever. It didn't totally work for me, but that was one heck of an image of the like weird hellscape that the wing-headed dudes are forced to live in. Mm-hmm. I guess it does fit with the objectivism thing, but... If memory serves, the thrust of that is like being happy is like your moral obligation or something. Mm-hmm. Like your own happiness. Yeah. Selfish happiness. Uh-huh. I don't know. I don't really, I guess, get that from the struggle of these critters that were created, you know, to be shit upon by the Skeksis. Well, that is their struggle. That is what they are trying to do. They're trying to escape to be free to serve their own self-interest and they're being prevented from doing so. And that they are not allowed to have their individuality. That's why they're forced to live in the city of no ego Mm -hmm. and being oppressed by those with no identity. Yeah. And the Naya are described as the happy free spirits who are the only creatures who are happy and free. I suppose that all, that all checks out. Um, it's definitely weird. Yeah. I did really enjoy Namor, at the very beginning of the story, complaining about having to walk so far, and the Hulk being like, dude, you're sitting on my shoulder this whole hike. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I noticed that also. That was pretty funny. So, yeah, I thought that was pretty fun. I guess it's nice to get the backstory of this place. Um, But I gotta say, once I started reading shit backwards, I was like, oh, well, fart noise. Yeah, I gotta, I gotta keep that in mind for these comics. There's always, this is not the first time that reading things backwards has um, given us clues. Right, and maybe I am reading too much into it, or reading backwards too much into it. But that was certainly my take on what's happening with this high fantasy adventure of wing-headed weirdos. Yep. And we do also get a little bit of, I believe this is the first issue where we really see that those are not ears because he does have regular human-sized ears in front of those wings. Yeah. Very cruel and impractical design. Mm-hmm. Fucking birds. Birds. Never let them run shit. Have we learned nothing <laughs> from the previous, what, 78 issues? Yeah, and collective lifetimes. Mm. <laughs> Never let birds run shit. Never let birds run shit. If it's got a cloaca, it's gonna attack ya. That is the mnemonic. That's a good one. Words to live by. 
what did you think about the other half of the story? Oh, man. At first, I was thinking, okay, they're going to use this as some vehicle to explore sexism and, you know, maybe point out that that's not a great thing. Yeah. And maybe that was the intention, but it just it came out like, you know, that feeling of after you've seen a, like a Pam Greer movie from the from the 70s. Yeah. Where you're like, oh, that was super entertaining, but I also feel like just bad because there's so much stuff in there that is not good. Right. It left you with that feeling a little bit. There's definitely that. There is, yeah, the villain of the set piece is behaving in a way that is on the surface being condemned, I think, by the material, but is also presented in a kind of lascivious way that I think we're supposed to be enjoying on a certain level. And it's never comfortable when you get that. And there's more about this that makes it specifically problematic. Let's start off, though, with what I liked about this story, because that'll take a lot less time. <laughs> I liked that when I first saw Mandrill's appearance, it reminded me of the funk band Mandrill and the album art of their first LP, which is great. And then I listened to a bunch of Mandrill as I was reading this. Nice. I was always fascinated by that album. I think our parents had it. And uh, it's just, it's really good. And it's just a very visually arresting thing. So mm. when you open up and there's a full page splash of a Mandrill baboon that is dressed like Doctor Strange, you're like, oh, fuck, this is going to be weird and fun. Mm -hmm. And then you start reading it and it's certainly a lot less weird and fun. Less fun, maybe. Still weird. Yeah, yeah, the weird is consistent. So, yeah, that was what I liked about it. It reminded me of a funk band that I enjoy from uh, the late 60s and 70s. Although I think mm -hmm. they got back together and are maybe still touring. Really? Yeah. Wow. Uh, what else did I like about this? Uh, Peeper's appearance always cracks me up. And in fact, the appearance of most of the members of Mutant Force was fun. Ah. Mm -hmm. uh, I like that Hank Pym is chained up in a dungeon. That's nice. <laughs> uh huh. I was struck in this where I was like, oh, of course there's a bunch of sexist bullshit going on. Hank Pym is in this book. And I was reminded of how appropriate it is that Michael Douglas ends up playing him in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Oh, that's true. Because I remember there, I don't remember whether it was in a movie or a TV show or if it's something a friend said, but I do remember very distinctly hearing the phrase, that'd be like making a misogynist film without Michael Douglas. Unthinkable. <laughs> and I feel like the same can be said of Marvel Comics and Hank Pym. So the fact that there is a one-to-one -one relationship between those two figures, I think is very appropriate. Yep. Um, yeah, let's get into the worst shit about this story. Uh, before we even get into what happens in this story, I think we should go back and look at the origins of Mandrill, because they are super fucked up and I think shed some different light on what's happening in this comic. First of all, you get a really, really weird, problematic in terms of race and sex character. Do you want to take a guess at who created him? Um, was it not Hannigan? No, it was Steve Gerber. 
Oh, okay, that was I was gonna guess Gerber actually. Yeah, it's it's a solid guess, frankly. Unfortunately, and there does reach a certain point where I don't know. I want to give Gerber the benefit of the doubt on things because I have liked some of his work. But when you read more of it, you start to definitely notice patterns in terms of you're presenting a lot of stories in which questionable things surrounding race and misogynists keep popping up, but without having a clear viewpoint on it that you're presenting. And Mm -hmm. so for the first couple of times, I'm like, I wonder what you're trying to say about misogynists with this story that you're showing. And after a while, you really have to start wondering if, oh, is what you are saying, I am one? Because it really seems that way. It's I had a similar thing with like the movies of Neil LeBute. Are you familiar with him? No, that name does not ring a bell. He was the auteur behind In the Company of Men and Your Friends and uh, Neighbors. Oh, yeah. And Damn. then the remake of Wicker Man. What? Yeah. <laughs> But I mean, it, honestly, if you look at those three, it is kind of a progression of at least when I saw them, I was like, this is interesting and really uncomfortable to watch. I'm not sure what statement it's making as it is showing these scenes of horrible misogyny. Mm-hmm. And then by the third one of those, you're like, oh, OK, it's actually pretty straightforward. Mm. And I feel like a similar journey has kind of happened to me with a lot of Gerber's work. Which that is, is unfortunate. unfortunate because I. I do like a lot of his stuff, but taken as a whole, you do start to notice certain patterns. And Mm -hmm. one of those is the creation of Mandrill. Mandrill first showed up in a comic that Steve Gerber co-wrote with a woman named Carol Suling. It was Shanna the She-Devil number four. And then we learned Mandrill's backstory when Gerber was writing Daredevil. And specifically, he showed up in Daredevil 110 through 112, I believe. Mandrill's origin is that his dad was a nuclear scientist who was working at a nuclear science facility out in the desert. Also working at the facility was a housekeeper. Mandrill's dad was white. The housekeeper was black. They were both exposed to nuclear radiation, and it affected both of their offspring. Mandrill was born with dark skin. The housekeeper's child was born with very pale skin. She ended up growing up to be Necra, who looked like a vampire and had vampire tendencies. Mandrill ended up turning into an ape-like being. And it is very clearly presented within that comic book that we've both been rejected by our races because we appear to be of the other race. Mm. And conflating blackness with ape-like is, I mean, very obviously a fucked up thing to do. And as he grew older, he turned into the creature that we see as Mandrill in this. So that's step one. Oof. Yeah, not good. Oof. Not good. Their parents abandoned them both and left them in the desert where they became friends. They grew up together. Necra, it turned out, was a vampire who fed on hatred, which is fine. She didn't discover that until they were both attacked by some people. So Necra for, like, Necro dead, not for, like, she likes Nex because she's a vampire? I think it's kind of both, and I think that Necra is actually a great name for a vampire lady. Yeah. 
Uh, not a great character overall, I don't think, but uh, a, a good name. Solid choice there. Certainly better than Mandrill. Anyway, they ended up becoming a team, and Mandrill developed his power, which is to release pheromones, as we see in this issue, that can mind control any women and basically turn them into his sex slaves. And he first started employing that. He moved to Africa. Oh. Yeah, that's where he encountered Sheena, and his original plan was he, he would make the women who he was controlling paint their faces reminiscent of his mandrel baboon face and attack his enemies. Uh, he briefly became president, actually. <laughs> president of the U.S.? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, not for very long. But for a few seconds, at least. Or I guess maybe he didn't become president, but he sat in the president's chair and declared himself president. So, you know, there was that. Okay. But yeah, then we get to what he does in this issue, which is essentially use his powers to become, I guess, a super pimp in a way. God, it just gets worse. It really does. Like, it's one of those where, like, as I am saying the words even, I'm just like, God damn it. How does a character whose origin, canonically, is that he was a Caucasian child who was born with dark skin, so he naturally became increasingly ape-like and had libido-based superpowers? Get worse. But this comic is essentially, oh, here's how. He uses his superpowers to become a Machiavellian pimp. That's pretty much how you would describe what he's doing in this issue, right? He is using these women who he is controlling and commanding them to seduce mutant force and offer their affection, and it's pretty strongly implied their bodies as a reward for obedience. Yeah, not good. Not good at all. So, yeah, that's the issue that we get, and those are my main issues with it. You know, it's it's funny because when... I came upon that the panel that introduces him. My first thought was like, oh, what a cool looking, you know, Doctor Strange mandrel character. Mm -hmm. And then immediately I was like, I'm not going to research this. <laughs> there's no way it can be a good story. No. In fact, I just found the page that has that backstory that you were talking about. Right. The one from, I think, Daredevil 111. It's kind of shocking because they say, yeah, a, a black white boy and a white black girl, both ostracized, both learning the same ugly lesson about dot 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 America. Yeah. It, but he's he's depicted literally as an ape. Yeah, yeah. It, it's the story that the words tell in that. It's like, that could be an interesting story. Mm -hmm. And it could be told well. And it is not. And there is no reason to conflate apeness with that backstory, except for that that's kind of what Marvel did. Because they also have Man-Ape, who was one of Black Panther's foils. Who, I mean, thankfully, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, he just goes by Mabaku and is a much better character. But yeah, I don't see that kind of redemptive presentation of Mandrill coming anytime soon. Mm -hmm. At least, honestly, I kind of fucking hope not. In the past several issues of The Defenders, there has been a tendency, it really seems like, to, since Steve Gerber has left the company, kind of take his old toys and break them. We saw it happen with Fool Killer. 
he gets brought in for a couple of issues real quick and then made to look foolish and thrown in jail. We saw Ruby Thursday get killed. We saw the protagonist of Omega the Unknown get killed. And I gotta say, I don't have a problem if they want to break the mandrill, but I wish they would have done it through neglect. I think that is the best way to dispense with a character like this. I don't feel like he needs to be brought back, and I don't know if they're gonna kill him off or somehow take him out of the equation as a villain. It would fit with what we have seen in these pages lately with what they do with Steve Gerber creations, but I wish they hadn't bothered. Yeah. Dang. Yeah. Well, at least Kyle's going to come to the rescue. Oh my god, it just keeps getting worse. <laughs> Seriously, what the fuck? Wasp is doing so good. And she's like, oh, I know what'll fix this. Let's call Kyle. I was, I think I was, I said, no. For God's sake, I think at this point she was leader of the Avengers. Uh, if she wasn't leader, she had at least been a member in good standing of the Avengers for a very long time. She has a pretty deep super rolodex at this point so yeah the avengers are busy the fantastic four are busy so she's like well i only have one option left i'm gonna call kyle you know what maybe i'm not giving her the the benefit of the doubt maybe she knows that he's gonna get into bigger trouble <laughs> but he'll be unable to resist the call of his ego by you know saying oh only you can get us out of this and she's just doing it to fuck with. Maybe. I would like to think that. But yeah, it's definitely presented as just like, well, I tried two people, so that only leaves Kyle. And it's like, wait, 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 wait. You are in the Marvel Universe. Like, there are 50 characters that it seems like, literally at least 50, that would be ahead of Kyle in who you should call. <sighs> I mean, maybe she was still lightheaded from Diane having her quick thinking and covering up the holes of the jar that Wasp was put in so that the pheromones wouldn't get at her. It seemed weird that Mandrill and his underlings would just let Diane keep Wasp in a jar after presumably she was under his control. It seems like once they believed that, it'd be like, well, we don't need to keep her in a jar anymore. But good thing that they did. It was certainly very, very quick thinking on Diane's part to keep that going. Mm-hmm. I don't know how she inherently knew that it was being done through pheromones, but good for her. Yeah, that makes no sense. No, it doesn't. That's a hell of an inference. It really is. Also, I think I maybe brought this up before, but what the fuck is it with baboons being inherently hypnotic? Because <laughs> uh... he's not an albino baboon. Like, Beast Boy had to turn into to hypnotize those circus goers. No, he's not. I just, it's a trope that maybe I'm unfamiliar with. But what, what, what the fuck gives, man? The, yeah, this is, it's problematic also because, like, this idea, I guess from a, a science-y perspective, of if a creature can be so aware of the chemicals that he or she naturally produces is to use them to exert some sort of control or get a reaction from other people. Like, that's kind of an interesting idea for a superpower. Mm -hmm. But it's made problematic by, again, the whole ape thing and this, like, animal magnetism angle. Yeah. Which just makes it all feel ham-fisted and creepy. Yeah. So I'm disappointed that it's like, it is this potentially interesting idea, but then they took it and made it gross. Yep. 
Also, I mean, if he's going to be doing that, maybe the reason he's wearing the Doctor Strange cape is because he has his big purple baboon butt hanging out. But I feel like <laughs> we should at least get that. If we have to deal with all of the bad shit about him, then it seems like at least we should get the upside of the baboon, which is that its butt looks funny. Yeah. There's a, a weird miscue, too, in the art between uh, page, I think maybe page 14, where it's that full page where they've introduced him. And he's got these big, like, scary, sharp clawed hands. Mm-hmm. And then in the following page, his hands are depicted very human with manicured fingernails. Hmm. Corey, I think you might have found the flaw in this issue. The one? <laughs> yep. Just that one panel. <laughs> it was hard work, but, uh, you know, <laughs> you're welcome. Thank you. Honestly, that is probably uh, attributable to the fact that both Ed Hannigan and Herb Trimpe worked as artists on this issue. They are both listed as penciler, and then it is Mike Esposito on the inks. So that may have just been a miscommunication between the two of them. I'm not sure how the labor was broken up, but when you do have a pretty serious flop like that from one to the next, it, it would make sense that that was done by different artists. And the flopping continues, too, because on that page, page 15, where he's got the human hands, in the panel on the bottom right, he's in the background, and he's now got superhero gloves. Man. Oops. There is also a new colorist on this issue, so there, there's a lot of different potential reasons for the, uh, the different artistic styles. Speaking of which, the cover is absolutely gorgeous, and perhaps an even goofier depiction of Eroica, in that he is glowing and bronze on the cover and very much looks like like a golden god yeah like a statue of a greek god only with those goofy ass giant head wings i actually really like the cover so that's another nice thing about this book it is by rich buckler and bob mcleod and it is very pretty he's drawn so well in that panel i don't know it almost seems like the head wings aren't so goofy yeah. Like your your brain, I think, your brain says, oh, those are just from his back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know, man. I think they still look pretty goofy. Oh, can you imagine how irritating that would be? I would not care for it. Well, now that we've got all that fun stuff taken care of, <laughs> is there anything else you want to bring up before we move into the minutia? No, I think we've said enough. Okay. Rick, would you mind singing us into the minutia? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Cory eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. Yeah, thank you. So, Cory, which category do you feel like starting with? Let's talk about words. Okay. What was your pie not made out of steel? What words did you enjoy, much like you would enjoy a pie, were it not made of steel? So, we don't have the Bozone category for, for this comic. And despite all the problems that we've been talking about with the Mandrell character, there was a zinger that he had that I, I thought was pretty interesting, in which he called Mutant Force a broken-down group of losers with a communal inferiority complex. Yeah. This idea that they all have these, perhaps, insecurities that are slightly different, but all kind of like ping pong and ricochet off one another, <laughs> making them this like really ineffective, you know, sad group of supervillains was kind of an interesting. Yeah. 
And that is really underscored by the rest of that panel, because you see the Scorcher just kind of comforting the lifter and being mm-hmm. like, yeah, take it easy, buddy. He, he's right, but c- come on. There, It is a very nice moment of two very goofy-looking dudes consoling one another. We are losers. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's okay. <laughs> yeah, we're all losers together. Yeah, I liked that, too. I had that as a potential pie not made out of steel. And speaking of zingers, I also liked the previous statement that Mandrill makes on the, the panel right before that, where he says, Silence, you moron. You'll never run anything. You'll do as I say or you're out. Dang. Yeah, harsh words. I think my favorite, though, was delivered by old winghead himself, and I don't mean Captain America, uh, <laughs> when he is learning about this strange trio of heroes that he has. It is specifically when he has just been thinking about how rad Namor is and learning about Namor and just being like, oh my God, this guy's the fucking best. He lives (laughs) underwater and he fights Nazis. This guy's awesome. And then it's like, I guess I need to learn about Steve. Eroika knows he must tear his attention away to listen to the songs of the others, but he pauses in envy at the amphibian's power of flight. How can those tiny wings support Namor in the air? I have wondered that so many times. Yeah, it's got to be especially frustrating when you yourself have enormous wings that are completely unfunctional. I know. Giant wings on my head that don't work and make me look like a goof. And he's got these tiny, barely noticing wings on his legs or his ankles. Mm -hmm. And they work. Yep. What the fuck? What a world. And yeah, and then he continues, the sorcerer is less of a puzzle. Wizards are a familiar breed in Tunnel World. He's probably doing the jerk-off motion. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. (laughs) Wizards. So, yeah, I liked the zingers. Those those are good. I think all my favorite, my pie not made out of steel, was on page two. And it's Namor himself saying, By Neptune's sacred scepter, strange, is there no end to this aimless tramping about? Where does our wing-headed companion lead us? After which he's admonished by the Hulk <laughs> because he's not doing any walking. But it was just so Namor-y, you know, the fact that, like, he's catching a ride on the Hulk's shoulder, but he's still super annoyed that things are not, you know, producing results. Absolutely. I love that. And, yeah, you're absolutely right. That is the most namor way possible to say, Doctor Strange, are we there yet? <laughs> right. <laughs> What was your favorite panel? So I did have, I think, page eight, the one that we were just talking about. I called it Heroes. And I was amused by the fact that, oh, I don't know, two thirds, three quarters of it is is devoted to Namor. Uh Uh-huh. And then Strange and Banner get get a little bit of a call out at the end. But the way that it's uh, constructed with Eroika's head in the center, as he's seeing all these cool exploits that uh, the heroes have done, it's a... It's well put together. I like that one. It is mostly well put together, and I did consider that one, but honestly, the uh, airplane that Namor is exploding, it seems like he needn't have bothered because there is no way that thing could possibly get airborne to begin with. I just assumed he had smashed it into wrongly angled (laughs) pieces of things. (laughs) If If that's how they designed the plane, then yeah, it is a jacked up airplane. Yeah. 
Like, unless he re-welded things on at a wrong angle after smashing through the plane. I'm like, what the fuck is that thing even? No, I just assumed he he just smashed it so hard it got all bent and twisted. Maybe. <laughs> it is a jacked up looking airplane, though. Yeah. The art in this book is at times very good, but kind of inconsistent. And I think that is probably for two reasons. One, there were two different pencilers working on it. And B, the fact that there were two different pencilers working on it means that it was probably behind schedule and kind of rushed. So I didn't like this panel, but there is a part of the panel that really cracked me up. And that is on page 18. And it is the first scene that you get of Mandrill's uh, harem, I guess you would call it. The entertainment room where all of the women that he has mesmerized are seducing mutant force it's a weird and creepy and uncomfortable scene but in the lower left hand corner of it is peeper being fed grapes and the look (laughs) on peeper's face especially because the way the shot is constructed i at first thought that he was holding up his own grapes Uh i was just like thinking grapes he's so into grapes he loves them so much yeah that's a funny one So I liked that. That was a panel that I called Peeper Loves Grapes, and I didn't like the whole panel, but I liked that part of it. On page 22, the initial reveal of Mandrill, where there is so much that is awful about this character, but when you do just see a Mandrill baboon dressed like Doctor Strange, my initial thought was just like, oh, this'll be fun. This is weird and goofy. Uh Uh-huh. And I wish I could go back to the feeling I had before I knew shit about that guy and just thought that maybe he had at some point posed for the funk band Mandrill's album cover. Yep, I know I know that album cover. It's so good. It is good. I'll have to give it a listen. I had a backup panel to that I really liked, and it was on page, I guess if the page with the Mandrill intro is 22, this would be page 21, and it's Val after seeing Peeper eat those grapes, just just like loses it and she's like fuck this and busts out of her chains Mm -hmm. and uh everybody around her goes flying and there's like a you know all these like action motion lines in the background showing it's this really dynamic thing there's bits of chains flying around and somebody shouts look out she's loose (laughs) (laughs) that is a really fun panel and it's also just very reminiscent of some of the suffragist poster art that I think inspired Wonder Woman's initial look, just of her, yeah, snapping the chains of oppression. Unfortunately, it doesn't last, but it is a very, very nice image. Mm-hmm. And the follow-up is pretty great, too, because after she busts free from those chains, uh, Lifter and the Shocker run up, and she does, like, a field goal kick, <laughs> and yep. they just go flying like bowling pins. Yep, knocks Shocker right off his lobster claw feet. God, he's such a goof yeah i also liked the we talked about the hieronymus bosch inspired dreamscape image of the wing-headed beings backstory it is just a weird panel and there is a lot going on in it and i liked the combination of dreamscape and exposition in that context yeah no it's pretty clever any others no, those were the top three for me i think i am gonna give it to despite the jacked up airplane <laughs> the uh, hero page Fair enough. I think I'm going to go with the portion of that one panel that I call Peeper Loves Grapes. Because you know what? Peeper loves grapes. That much is clear. 
Well, Corey, it's time for us to reach a difficult decision. Oh, shit. Behold or be gone. Today, we are going to have to decide about magic that is triggered by speaking backwards. Oh. Is, is this something we want to behold or do we wish it would be gone? So we've seen it before. That is how Zatanna Zatara in the DC universe does her magic. And we see a different kind of magic being performed with writing things backwards here. The magic of introducing Ayn Rand philosophy into a comic book. <laughs> oh, magical. That, I am definitely fine with that being begone. But if you are in a magical universe where magic can be performed, would you like it to be done by speaking backwards or through more traditional means of, say, gesturing and incantation? So can anybody do magic by speaking backwards or just like wizards and magic people? I'm saying in this context, you specifically could. Oh, me? Yes. In this scenario, you can perform magic. Now, do you want it to be by speaking backwards or through more traditional means? Okay, in this, in this context, then do I know what I'm doing? Like, if I say, uh, I don't know, what's something backwards? If I say, pans for... Snap? Um, would it make a, a snapping sound? <laughs> yep. I think that is probably what could happen. I think you are maybe going to run into some issues with homophones. Like maybe when you said snap, instead of it creating a snapping sound, which is totally a reasonable use of magical powers, instead, say, snaps provolone. Sylvester Stallone's character from the movie Oscar might show up. Mm. But it seems like it would maybe be less work than learning various incantations and wand movements, etc. Okay, yeah, I'm gonna go with it. I guess the tricky thing is, is like, how do we know what palindromes are gonna do? Ooh, that's a good question. I'm not sure. Like, what if I'm like, uh, abracadabra, uh, mom? <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah, if you want your mom to have a race car, you could have some real issues. Uh huh. I'm not sure how that would pan out. I'm not sure how you would differentiate with homophones. I think that homophones are going to get you in trouble in this scenario, which is why I am actually going to go with be gone. Really? Yeah, in general, I trust my linguistic skills more than my manual dexterity, but... I am not great at pronouncing things. A little while ago, I had a listener congratulate me on finally pronouncing deus ex machina correctly, and I told him, hey, if you don't like the way I pronounce a word, just wait 10 minutes. I'll probably say it different. And I think between that and homophones and magic's natural tendencies in stories anyway to try to fuck you over like genie style... Mm -hmm. Like when you've got a genie and you wish for a million bucks and then suddenly there's a million Robin Lopez backup center for the Milwaukee bucks hanging out in your house and you got to figure out a way to feed them all. You know, shit like that. There's just too many opportunities for it to go wrong and fuck you over. And, be, and you know, magic as an entity being like, Oh, well, I gave you what you asked for. I feel like you run into that a lot in narratives. And uh, 
There's probably a reason for it. So even though it is more difficult for me to uh, learn a wand movement spoken in conjunction with an incantation, I feel like there is less room for interpretation with it. So I'm going to give it a be gone. Yeah, that's fair. I think I'm okay with that, though. I, I feel like there should be like serious repercussions for not taking this stuff seriously. Mm. And I am not a fan of having repercussions for my actions. <laughs> it's my least favorite part of repercussions, is when they're for me. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's never fun. Yeah, so uh, I'm going to say be gone. Fair enough. This is a tricky one for me, but every issue of a Defenders comic book has a worst offender and a best defender. In this issue, who was your worst offender? Uh, I think in this one, I just, I defaulted to Kyle for just being <laughs> such a, a pompous ass. Like, who refers to yourself on the phone when you're talking to a subordinate as Mr. Last Name? <laughs> Hello, laboratory guy. This is Mr. Richmond. I was like, what a jerk. Yeah, that is the kind of guy who, in a children's movie, would be very opposed to the idea of children having imaginations and just wants to run a bank. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, Kyle does not come off well in this issue. I will definitely grant you that. Um, I'm just going to read his speech. Sure. I know Val and Hellcat are my friends even though they're responsible for burning my house down. But every two-bit bureaucrat in Washington is waiting for me to slip up. If I become Nighthawk, it'll be a deliberate defiance of a court order. They've forbidden me my identity. Which is precisely why I'll be glad to help. I'll be there in four hours. Why did you go through that whole misdirect? Mm. Yeah, and then, as mentioned, he follows that up with, Hello, Aerospace Lab. This is Mr. Richmond. (laughs) Ah, there's that objectivism again, right? Yep. They've forbidden my identity. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I understand your choice. I, on the other hand, had to go with the Wasp for turning to Kyle in the first place. Maybe she did it as some part of a prank on him, but it seems like there must have been other people for her to call. There's the X-Men. Why not call the X-Men? Why not call the Champions? I don't think they had disbanded at that point, but even if they had or Daredevil, or Ghost Rider, or Tagak the Leopard Lord, or heck, any of the Defenders for a day, or a billion other characters in the Marvel Universe. A large block of cheese. Yeah! (laughs) Willie Loman. Wait, no, he's from Death of a Salesman. But hell, him too. I was trying to think of that. Willie Lumpkin, uh, the the Fantastic Four's mailman. Yeah, Lumpkin and some cheese. (laughs) Yeah! That would have been better. Now that's a Marvel team-up I could get behind. <laughs> Willie Lumpkin and a block of cheese. Or Nighthawk. Hmm. Oh, gosh, not even a close contest there. He's not even as strong as two blocks of strong cheese. <laughs> <laughs> well, not unless it's nighttime. Yeah, yeah it's a real Stilton time. Mm-hmm. That's a strong cheese, right? Yeah, I think so. Stinky. Yeah, oh, I like a Stilton. Pretty good. I like stinky cheeses, man. I used to not, but I, as I've, I've uh, matured, I, I've learned to appreciate them. Nice. Yeah. Still haven't learned to appreciate Kyle, though. Who did you have as your best defender? Yeah, this, this was a tough one. I didn't have any stinky cheese to choose from. 
And I am assuming since Diane is kind of a peripheral character, I I cannot choose her for her astounding inference that uh it was um pheromones. No, I went back and forth on that and I know we have had kind of non-hero type defenders be chosen in the past, but I don't think we can count Diane as a defender, although she very clearly does the best job in this comic book. Yep. Okay, so if she's out, then my second choice was Wasp, but if I can't use her calling Kyle just to fuck with him and get him in deeper trouble with the feds, which, if I'm being honest, I don't think she was really doing that. I can't choose her. Which, for me, leaves uh, Val for that field goal kick that sent the bad guys tumbling. That was pretty good. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. I decided to go with Namor for just being so distracting with his awesomeness that Eroica is just like, oh, fuck, I guess I'll learn about Steve and the Hulk, too. Boring. Yeah, that was pretty hilarious. It uh, was almost as if Hannigan was feeling that himself. (laughs) It really does seem that way. And hey, I get it. Not so much with the Hulk, but with the Hulk, there was an in-story reason. He reverted to Bruce Banner immediately. Whether he was comforted by sleep and so he did that, or whether that was a side effect from the underpants monster's name being uh, uploaded into his noodle. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I know it wasn't really anything that he did in this issue, more of who he was and had become by this point. But uh, I thought that was pretty cool by Namor. And also I liked that he uh, hitched a free ride on the Hulk as an owl and still complained about it. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty good. What was your favorite sound effect? This was pretty good for sound effects. I had a toss-up between... uh, Wasp does a lot of zapping of bad guys and bad girls in this issue. Mm -hmm. On page 9, there was a pizzat. P-Z-A-T. I thought that was good, but I think my favorite is uh, Hellcat doing the fancy kick and kicking a bad guy in the head, and it makes this hollow-sounding noise. Bok! I liked that, too. And the font that the word was depicted in made it look like it might be saying box too, which I think would be kind of like just funny onomatopoeic if hitting somebody made the noise box. Uh, although it was a kick, not a punch, which mm-hmm. I guess is different. It would have to have been kickbox or savat. <laughs> exactly. But I went with the noise the shocker made electrifying a pole, which was bazak, Yep. which I believe is probably short for Balzac. Huh. All right. Yeah. I mean, I assume. Yeah. Right. And about um, post Napoleon stuff. Yeah. That's probably what he was doing. <laughs> I'm sure he is a big playwright fan. Yeah. I think that's probably what the shocker was commenting on. And I don't remember what Balzac wrote. So I don't know what that comment is. You got me the shocker. Shocking. <laughs> Every issue of a Defenders comic has one character who has to act out of character in a way that furthers the plot. To paraphrase the Fat Boys from Crush Groove, they've just gotta be a sucka. In this issue, who was your sucka? This one was a little tricky for me, and I know I often say that, but I wound up going with Val because of a sort of switcheroo where, so initially when confronted with that scene of all the, I guess, drugged women, including, you know, people getting fed grapes. She 
is like fuck this and breaks her chains and it seems like it's going to be the impetus for her you know kicking a lot of ass and, and solving that situation but then is pretty much immediately like succumbs to the pheromones yeah i get it that needs to happen to move the story forward but i was kind of thinking this would be the opportunity for her to be that strong hero that we we like to see her being yeah i think honestly it's more that we would like to see her being than we like to see her being because there are so few instances of it actually being the case but yeah i know what you mean i don't know if i would necessarily call that her being a sucker though it's a plot point that these pheromones have that effect on her i don't think it's been established that they wouldn't you know yeah no it's not her behavior it's like i said it's a it's a tough one so it's it's not an ideal choice and and i do think it's also kind of more reflective of how i would like to see her her character treated yeah then you know some weird choice that she made to drive the plot forward but that's that was my choice okay I went with Jan for reasons that we've discussed. I can't believe that Kyle would be her third option or even in her top 20 options of who to call. She has a super deep superhero Rolodex. And I was thinking back and I was like, does she even know Kyle? Like, have they even met? I think they might have met back when he was a villain, but I don't know if they would have interacted since then. Well, how about this, though? Maybe she's doing a send a thief to catch a thief thing since she's trying to rescue (laughs) Hank. Okay. And I can also see, like, she is married to Hank, so I can see, like, Hank Pym after teaming up with the Defenders coming home and just being like, oh, man, I just teamed up with the coolest guy ever. (laughs) Right? Just won't shut up about how great Kyle is. Yep. So, yeah, that is a potential reason that she would do that. That would not necessarily be out of character. But like you said, slim pickings in this. So I decided to go with Jan. Fair enough. Sartorially speaking, what elements of fashion did you find most worthy of note? Yeah, there's a couple standouts. Um, We've talked a few times about Mandrill's full page appearance mm-hmm. and uh, he does have a very kind of steve strange look with his garb the way though that he's drawn also with those clothes reminded me of the mutant universe that uh, eastman and laird created ah in particular there was a rpg that that came out i can't remember when sometime in the 80s where you could play all these different mutant type characters that were humanoid and um, it, it reminded me of that so it had a, a fun kind of nostalgic thing so I liked that as basically, you know, Doctor Strange kind of ripoff. Mm-hmm. I also was pretty impressed by the embroidery on the Skeksis hood at the beginning of the story. Yeah, yeah, it had a really fun like filigree around the edge of his cloak's hood and also had some nice embroidery on the stomach of like, I couldn't tell if it was a harp or an acorn, but uh, pretty cool looking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Mr. No Identity himself. And in, in that, that panel that we, we've described as being Bosch-like, there's a scene in which a bunch of the wing-headed guys are carrying this litter with ostensibly a male and a female evil bird creatures. And the dude is wearing, I think, just nothing but like a large polo shirt, <laughs> drinking a goblet of wine. <laughs> and he just looks so chilled out. And that cracked me up. <laughs> yeah, he is absolutely Winnie the Poohing it. Yep. 
I hadn't noticed that, but that is a heck of a thing. I had some fashion-adjacent things that I think are worth commenting on. The curtains in Mandrill's harem. Uh, they are green curtains with bright yellow flowers on them, and I thought that was a very nice look. The whole scene really looks like a mid-level hotel suite, and mm. I thought that was uh, a nice choice. Also, we get Kyle's apartment, which, first of all, Kyle is wearing a ascot with a short robe with a popped collar, which is a fun look, but his ultra-modern apartment looks cool as fuck. Specifically, in the background, you can see, I'm not sure if it's his bathroom or his kitchen, but there is some nice, like, black-and-white check tile on the wall, and it's pretty neat looking. Yeah, and if we were doing a timestamp, that circular rug, or the oval-shaped rug in front of his bed, that looks mm -hmm. like a very 70s or 80s thing. Absolutely. And yeah, we are just on the cusp of the 80s in this issue. I think it does have an 80s cover date, but I think it did technically come out in 79 still. But uh, yeah. Now, we both know that the Hulk rules. But in this issue, what were the Hulk's rules? I had, hey, walk a mile in my shoes or stop complaining, Namor, for real. <laughs> like, or more generally, if you haven't had a direct experience of something, don't whine about that experience that you haven't had. Especially to someone who has. Exactly. I think that is a very good rule. I had a couple of possible Hulk rules here. The first one is... Aeronautical engineering is more difficult than you might think. <laughs> and I think we get that message both from Aroika's head wings not working and Namor's tiny foot wings working, and how difficult apparently it is to draw a decent airplane. <laughs> so, aeronautical engineering is more difficult than you might think, is one potential Hulk's rule. The other one would be. Riding in a convertible is super fun. And we get that lesson from the very last page of the comic book. <laughs> Look at Mutant Force. Look how much fun they are having. It looks like they're on a roller coaster. Uh-huh. Slither has his long snake arms flying in the breeze, looking kind of like one of those inflatable devices that sells used cars. And... The Shocker is waving his lobster claws in the air. Peepers is feeling the breeze in his enormous creepy eyeballs. That is true. They are all into those convertible things. Mm -hmm. They look like they are just having the time of their life. So yeah, the two potential rules that I had the Hulk learning from this issue are it can be really fun to ride in a convertible and aeronautical engineering is more difficult than you might think. Mm. So what's your choice? Ah, uh, why not both? The Hulk can learn a lot of rules. Those are good rules. I think so too. Well, Corey, I have but one final question I must put to you. What Wong doings is Wong doing in the year of our Lord, 1980, and the month of our Lord, January? Yeah, so... Wong was trying to help out an old buddy of his solve an academic challenge, which was how to get his students to understand three-dimensional design. 
Mm. And so he was sitting there putting a lot of thought into it. He had the uh, Pretenders eponymous Pretenders record, which came out on the 11th of that month and year uh, on heavy rotation. And it occurred to him a way to do this would be the simple cube. And so he gave his buddy Erno a call at his office at the Department of Interior Design at the Academy of Applied Arts and Crafts in Budapest, Hungary, and suggested that he devise this kind of movable cube as a way to teach the students about these 3D objects. And so they were, you know, kind of sketching and coming up with ideas. And, you know, along with all the access to the cool stuff in the Sanctum Sanctimonious, came up with this floating cube that was made up of smaller cubes that, when rotated and fiddled with in a certain way, would um, create matching colors on on the edges. And he shared this with uh, Erno Rubik, who then, you know, as they continued to brainstorm, he thought, you know, this is something that I think is a, is a puzzle that the world would uh, really respond well to. Hmm. And so then later in that year, the Rubik's Cube made its international debut at the uh, British Toy and Hobby Fair in Earl's Court, London, and uh, then went on to become one of the best selling toys of all time. Wow. Impressive work, Wong. Thank you. <laughs> Now, at what point did he develop Cube Lube? <laughs> that uh, came out as so the so-called uh, Rubik's Cube craze during the early to mid-80s had competitions springing up worldwide where people were doing everything they could to shave valuable seconds off of their cube handling time. And somewhere in, in that the competitive circuit, Cube Lube, which was an actual thing. Oh, I know. We remember that ad for it that we had. Yeah. Wow. And I assume that when you lube your cube up properly, you could get it to be kind of shiny, and hence it could be described as gleaming the cube. Ah, I, I suppose it could, inspiring a young Bones Brigade to go on and make cinematic <laughs> history. Ah. Uh, history? Yeah, history. <laughs> in that it's in the past and was recorded? It was presumably, presumably somebody wrote a script for that. Yeah. You don't think Slater was just ad-libbing the whole time? No way. Well, that is one thing that Wong was up to. But it wasn't the only thing that he was up to. Another thing that Wong was doing was uh, feeling a little bit blue. Because he was a big fan of James Garner and The Rockford Files aired its last episode on January 10th of 1980. And Wong was feeling kind of glum about that. Now, Steve noticed that Wong was feeling a little bit glum and decided that he should do something about that. And so he was like, Wong, you seem a little down in the dumps. Is this because your Rockingham Exploits television program has been canceled? And Wong's like, well, close enough, yeah. And Steve was like, uh, well, tell you what, my good man, we'll take you down to a discatorium. How would that be? And Wong was like, you know, normally I am not a huge fan of disco. I like funk and there is some overlap there. But uh, I got to say, I'm kind of curious where you're heading with this. So Steve took him down and was like, I've read about this place. It's supposed to be the most happeningest place. It's called Loft 69. And Wong was like, do you mean Studio 54? And Steve's like, yes, which is why that is what I said. So uh, 
Bog's like, I, you know, I don't think we're dressed really for it. And Steve was like, oh, is that all? Don't worry about it. I'll just use these disguises and we'll get in no problem. And so Steve used his disguise spell and transformed himself to look like an elderly wizard, which I guess he thought would get him into Studio 54, and he turned Wong into an owl. The guys at the door were like, no, I'm sorry, we are not letting you in the club. Wong was like, yeah, no, I, I didn't expect this to work. It, it's fine. And Steve was just like, but I thought we could go undercover like your friend John Rockford. It's like, that's that's not quite his name, but... uh. I, I appreciate the thought, uh, but he didn't really go undercover. He just had a printing press that made cards that had different business cards for him. Maybe he'd wear a set of glasses, but he never dressed up like an owl. But you know what, Steve, I appreciate the thought. But at this point, Steve was already too worked up about the whole thing. And so he decided that uh, Studio 54 needed to be punished for their refusal to allow he and Wong in. So he uh, pulled some political strings, and he found out that uh, Steve Rubell and Ian Schrager, who were the owners of Studio 54, had been arrested for tax evasion and were awaiting sentencing. And so he used his influence to see that they were sentenced to three and a half years in prison. Oh, spiteful. Yep, but that's Steve for you. And that <laughs> is the Wong doings that Wong and Steve were doing in January of 1980. Well, Corey, thank you for joining us for this episode. You are welcome. It was uh, not maybe the most fun book to read, but uh, I had fun talking about it with you. Yeah, likewise. And if you would like to talk to us about something, you can get into touch with us at our P.O. Box. That's Titan Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon. 97294. Or, as this is the future, we can be reached electronically at ttwasteland at gmail.com. Or if you don't feel like getting into touch with us one of those ways, why not check out uh, the social media? Sure, it's a nightmarish hellscape, but sometimes there's dumb jokes. So you can find us on Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, or Lisa runs an Instagram page. So yeah, you can check us out in any of those ways. And if you can't find us in any of those places, hey, try looking inside yourself. Try looking in your heart. We'll be there. Unless we stepped out for just a minute to, you know, go get some ice cream or something. It's hot in there. I guess it's maybe because we did all that grilling and set up a pizza oven. But, uh, you know, um, maybe get a fan. Maybe like a, a nice uh, circus, like ceiling fan. Like, oh, one of those misters. You know, call it uh, Mr. Mister and then uh, start singing 80s hair ballads. Yeah, I'll be fun. Yep. <laughs> Wait, what did Mr. Mister sing? Uh, I don't remember. I'm thinking I... of Mr. Big. Oh, wait, Mr. Mister saying take these broken wings. Very appropriate for this issue. Could be talking about Arowica's purely ornamental wings, or could be talking about the broken wings on that uh, plane that Namor beat up. Anyway, if you would like to support the show monetarily, you can do that by visiting our Patreon at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do, you get access to a whole bunch of bonus material, 
There is the monthly podcast that I co-host with Lisa. That's What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show in which we take a look at Steve Gerber's Howard the Duck comics from the 70s. There's a whole bunch of those that are out now. And there's also a bunch of video reviews of comic books that I've made. And uh, yeah, there's just a whole bunch of bonus material up there that you get exclusive access to if you donate. But mostly donating is just a really great way for you to let us know that you appreciate the work that we're doing and would like us to continue it. So thank you for that. If you would like to support the show in a non-monetary fashion, a great way to do that is to leave us a review somewhere. Like anywhere. Like, you know, just bathroom wall, uh, Yelp. And of the two, I generally prefer bathroom walls to Yelp on pretty much every level. <laughs> bathroom was closed. Two stars. <laughs> that is exactly the kind of shit you would get on Yelp. Ah, I had to take my pants off to go potty. Not like at home. One star. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking Yelp. So if you don't want to use Yelp, you can leave us a review on whatever platform you're using to listen to the show right now. Here's one we got recently on Apple Podcasts. Just like a Wednesday, five stars. When I was a mere youth, I used to travel to ye old comic shop to converse about my favorite comic book superheroes. We'd make fun of their antics and the shenanigans they'd get up to. That's what this podcast feels like. Now, I'm not an expert on shenaniganisms, but it's clear that Hub is. True. So if you want to learn all about shenanigans and Donnie Brooks and Tom Foolery and maybe even Mary Foolery, you should check out Tighten Up the Defense, which is most definitely hosted by a human man from Earth and his good-for-many-things brother, Corey. It's a hoot, and I'm not an owl. And that is by Kale TM. Thank you, Kale TM. Uh, I appreciate that, and I appreciate the fact that you're not an owl, because as we have discussed, I do not trust birds. But I feel like I can trust you, and congratulations on owning the trademark on Kale. I assume you're making a pretty penny off of that. Well done, Kale TM. Nice. So, uh, yeah, thanks. Well, um... Keep gleaming that cube. It's not going to gleam itself. Bye! Bye. <laughs> and they know it. I just um, hit record also. Oh, fine. All right. Well, let's clap <laughs> then. <laughs> okay, fine. Fine. Let's do it. Yep. One, two, three. Oh, nice. Yeah? Yeah, man. We were in sync like JC Chasse. His name gets fancier every time you say it. I'm g I get fancier every time I say his name. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, I gained power from it, I think. Uh, <laughs> all right, you ready? I guess so. One, two, three. Oh, yeah. yeah that was not bad. Yeah, pretty good. Pretty yeah. Good. I mean, it was no Jesse Chazé. <laughs> <laughs>